Hello, hello, welcome, and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. Today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Joe, and we're delighted to have a very special guest on the call with us, too. Today's interviewee is a Derby native whose career in the Football League and National League saw him honing his skills as a trainee in the 90s, playing for the oldest football club in the world in the noughties, and then in the teens, he would wind up back at the club at which he had gained legendary status during his career, Torquay but this time in a player-manager role. These days, he's the head of coaching at Exeter City, a club which has produced the likes of Ollie Watkins, Ethan Ampadu, and Matt Grimes in the past, with plenty of up-and-coming talent in their current squad too. Kevin Nicholson, welcome to the United Mates Football Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us, and how are you doing? I'm very well, and thank you for having me. Yeah, you've, you've done your homework there as well, impressed. <laughs> we try, we try our best. Um, Joe, of course, you're on, on the call with us today as well. How, how are you doing? Yeah, no, I'm I'm really good, um, Kaitel. Very happy for Kevin to be joining us. I obviously went to Exeter University, and Exeter's a club that I love. So to have the head of coaching for Exeter City on our podcast is, um, yeah, it's very exciting. But yeah, hello, Kevin. Welcome to the show. And um, we always start with an icebreaker. Um, so the icebreaker we've got for you is well, actually, it's regarding the club you played for towards the end of your playing career, Kidderminster Harriers. Um, we saw last week that, sadly, um, Brian Murdoch, who was known as the pie man at um, Kidderminster Harriers, sadly passed away. But um, his pies were apparently legendary in the Football League. Um, a former guest of ours, Seb White, has sort of said so himself. He loved them, apparently. And my favourite pie, I was thinking about it, and I'd probably have to say a cottage pie is probably my favourite pie. I actually made one a couple of days ago. But the question I have for you, Kevin, is what is your favourite pie? Excellent. So we're going straight into the serious stuff then, yeah? Yeah, always. Uh, so first of all, cottage pie, I think, is a massive cop-out. It's not really a pie, so I, I can't I can't accept that really as an answer. Okay, steak and ale then. I'll go steak and ale. If that, That's more, yeah, more like it. I, I, I'll have to go steak and kidney. Yeah, Thank I'm you. not, you know, as, a, as an, an athlete throughout my career, I tried to stay away from the pies, but um, in my weaker moments, then, yeah, it would be something along those lines. Fantastic. Um, yeah, steak and kidney—that's a good one. Um, but how about you, Kaito? What, what what's your favourite pie? Well, before I mention my favourite pie, I have to agree with yeah, Kevin. That unless it has a crust, it's, it's not really a pie, is it? But <laughs> otherwise, um, I think being in the states and being so close to Thanksgiving at the moment, I'll probably have to go for a sweet pie, like a dessert, maybe like pecan pie or pecan pie, some people call it. Anyway, moving on from from pastry um, to uh, a few more personal questions for you, Kevin, and uh, taking it back to where it all started, I suppose. Um, when did you start playing football? And then at what point did you become motivated to take it more seriously than just a game? When did it uh, become a goal of yours to become a footballer? Um, I started playing just for my, my local Sunday team when I was probably about nine, nine or ten years old, a team called Mickelover All-Stars, which is Mickelover's where I grew up, little village just outside of Derby. Um, and then I would say... It, back then, I think it's similar now. Back then, you used to you'd start at Sunday at, at kind of grassroots Sunday level, and then you, if you were good enough, you get picked for your uh, district, so the best players in the school in that area, and you go and play against other districts. Um, and then probably when I got into my district team, like realised I was pretty good, um, different player as a kid to what I was when I actually ended up playing professionally. I was a, a midfield player when I was younger, and. 
I was a very early developer, so I was kind of shaving at 12, which made football really easy against all those uh, smaller kids. And um, and I was pretty dominant, goal-scoring midfield player. And I think probably by the time I got to 12, I, I'd made the decision that I wanted to be a footballer. Um, and then you have those awkward conversations with the uh, careers advice people at school when they ask you what you want to be and you say footballer and they laugh you out of the room and tell you that's not going to be the case. What do you really want to be? And and you have to try and stick to your guns. So I think by the time I got to 12, it became serious. Um, I got picked up then by what was Stoke Academy or Stoke School of Excellence at, at that age. Had a couple of years there and then uh, on to Sheffield Wednesday, which is where I ended up uh, starting as a pro. Just to hang on the point you made about starting playing around the age of nine, I think that's probably most people consider on the slightly maybe late side, um, as it were. Did that affect the type of footballer you were or affect how long it sort of would end up taking you to come into your stride as far as a technical player? Well, I think I think it's quite modern thinking that nine is a late starter. I think back then it was perfectly normal. You know, we... Like, like most kids, I suppose, of my generation, like an 80s kid, you know, you, you basically played whatever was on TV at the time. So when Wimbledon was on, we were all tennis players. And when, uh, you know, on Channel 4, before Sky and all the rest of it came out, it, it showed the cricket. So you went out and played cricket. And then football was kind of a year-round thing because that was the main sport. Um, I don't think it hindered me as such. Uh, you know, football opportunity in football is far greater now than what it was back then, you know. I explained my bit where it was Sunday league and then district and then school and and then maybe a school of excellence. Well, you've got scouts watching eight-year-olds now, so it's uh, it's a very uh, different mix. Kevin, you mentioned a bit earlier about how you um, would go on to join Sheffield Wednesday, and um, as it happens, I believe you were coached by um, Ricky Hill when you were at Sheffield Wednesday. And Ricky Hill's actually someone I think, as we told you um, before you came on, that's been on been on our podcast and someone who we're incredibly fond of. So we'd just like to know, what what was it like to be coached by um, Ricky Hill? R- Ricky is a legend. Um, you know, I, I was really fortunate. I had loads of, of brilliant, brilliant coaches in those early years. I When I was kind of, um, my last two years of school, I went to a place called Lillyshaw, which back then was the equivalent of St George's Park. Um, and it was the national school. So Lillyshaw was the blueprint of what academies are now made up of. Um, but at the time, it was just for the top 16 players at that point. So I, I got, uh, there was a coach there called Keith Blunt, who is in the, the FA Hall of Fame for coaches. And unfortunately, he's passed away now, but he was absolutely brilliant. So I had these great coaches. And then Ricky was my my youth team coach, uh, along with his kind of partner in crime, Charlie Williamson, who was an ex-Sheffield Wednesday player himself. But Ricky was just incredibly inspirational. Um, you know, he just had that. He was still the best player at the club. I mean, he was, I, I'm assuming, I, at the time he seemed really old, which was probably about my age now. Um, but at the same time, he was just technically brilliant. So he joined in quite a lot of the sessions. He was absolutely unbelievable still as a player. So he was just a role model. You, you wanted to be able to play like him. You wanted to be able to have the career that he had. Um, but when he spoke, you listened. Um, when it, when he spoke about the detail of the game, about what it would take to make it as a player, you have these conversations all the time. When you're a young player, the coach stands you or sits you down, stands up in front of you, 
and tells you about how small a chance you've actually got of making it as a, as a professional. Even when you are actually, you've signed a professional at 17 at Chef Wednesday. You, you know, I'm technically a professional player, but you're still having the conversations about how little of a chance you've got of making a career out of it because that's just the statistics. It's just the, the percentages that make it. So you wanted to hear what you have to say. You wanted to listen to him. You wanted to find out what it would take to make it. Um, and he was just brilliant. Uh, it was it was almost a step down when you went into the reserves, um, which was technically a step up because you, you kind of left those two, Ricky and, and Charlie, and they were absolutely brilliant, brilliant coaches. So um, I really enjoyed my time working with Ricky and he, he kind of moved on to take over the, the Luton manager's job. Um, took one or two of the, the younger players with him to, to kind of be in and around their first team, but uh, he obviously must have had a left back already because I didn't get a call. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll have to we'll have to check in with him about that. But um, yeah, no, obviously it's great to hear um you speak so fondly about Ricky, and yeah, it's such a shame, really, based on what you're saying, you didn't get a few more opportunities. But um, going back to your um playing career, so obviously you started off at Sheffield Wednesday. I know there was a a brief spell at Northampton Town, but then you would you'd go on to play for um Notts County for um a few years between 2001 and 2004. And I know that during your spell at Meadow Lane, um, the club had some um, quite serious financial problems. And at one point, it looked like they potentially could even go out of business. Um, did um, did Notts County's problems off the fit, off the pitch even, affect your performances on the pitch? And how was that experience at being at a club where there was um, some quite serious financial problems? Yeah, I mean, I didn't realise. This will make me sound like a podcast pro, but this is the second ever podcast I've done. Um, <laughs> but I did my last one two weeks ago, uh, my, my first one, should I say. And that was that was a Notts a not County podcast. And and Paul Mace, who, who did this one, like told me that it was the, and still is, the record for a club being in administration. We were in administration for nearly, nearly two years. Um, and we had some fantastic players. We had better players than what our results and, and you know, in, in the end, in my last season, um, I'd been farmed out on loan towards the end of it, but they, they got relegated out of League One. And I would normally say, no, it, it didn't affect performances. But when you looked at the, the quality of the players that we had in the dressing room, it must have done. You know, it, 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 it's our fault. We shouldn't have let it because we couldn't control that. That's... You know, we, we were not getting paid on time. We were missing out on some payments full stop. There was a lot of unrest, obviously, in the fan base and, and in and around the club. But the fact is that you're still a footballer. You get up every morning and go and train. You run around outdoors, kick a football around, and then you, you get paid still to go and, and play in front of a few thousand people on a weekend. So we really shouldn't have let it affect um, our performances. If I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't have done. Um, but as a young player, and that was my first first time as an established first team player um I, I really think it must have done and we had some real highs we, we had some some really good times we had a couple of good cup runs um I was fortunate enough to score the winner in the last game of the season which was the, the great escape season so we we were all but relegated with 10 games to go and then we won eight or eight of the last 12 we won and we needed to, to win on the last day against Huddersfield to stay up and it was ridiculous. We had about 15,000 people in the ground, which was like three times the normal gate. Uh, there was Notts Forest fans came to watch because they were hoping we were going to get relegated. So there was all kinds of mixture of different things in and around the ground. Um, and I was lucky enough to score the winner. So I've got some of my favourite memories in football from 
what was generally a horrible season because we were down at the bottom most of the time, but finished on such a massive high. Um, but yeah, I think as with most clubs that suffer these financial kind of hardships, it goes one of two ways. It either becomes a real siege mentality and you fight your way out of it. And, and I have an experience where it's been a positive and you've been able to use it to motivate. But I think it probably went on for so long at Notts County that that initial will show you kind of attitude kind of got drained out of people as, you know, you weren't getting paid on time and issues were happening and players were leaving. But um, yeah, I do think that when you look at the talent, we're probably underachieved for what we have. Well, it's, it's good to hear that you have that highlight of scoring the the winner on the last day. And you've you've actually, you're someone who's been involved in a few great escapes throughout your career. I think we'll, we'll probably touch on another one of those in just a bit. But um, after Notts County and before Torquay, so in between you played for uh, Scarborough and then also Forest Green Rovers. So at the time they were both uh, conference or, you know, National League sides, as you would call it uh, today. But... These days, Forest Green sit in League Two and are one of the most sort of progressive organizations in world sports, having adopted a, a vegan culture at the club. They even play on like a completely organic grass pitch. And so it's no surprise that one of the owners is Arsenal's Hector Bellerin, who's um, very big into the, the environment and saving it. So so they're in a prosperous position. The other club I mentioned was Scarborough, who I'm sure you know, no longer exist at all. And they haven't since, since 2007. So Kevin, what I wanted to ask you was having played for both of the clubs, what have you made of sort of their respective journeys since then? And then also at the time that you were there, could you have foreseen both of those paths going the way that they did? Um, well, I mean, Scarborough have reformed. They have uh, they have kind of reformed and they've kind of fought the way up the league. So they're now, I think they're now what we call step four. So they're, they're a couple of promotions away from kind of getting back into the National League. So um, unfortunately, again, you know, when you think back, you don't necessarily think about it right now, but when you get asked the question, I realised that I spent a lot of time at clubs in turmoil. Um, and and this was this was one of them. My first year at Scarborough was, was pleasant. We did pretty well. I think we kind of finished with a record of 1-14, drew 14, lost 14. So we had a very solid season without really challenging for anything at the top or the bottom end. Um, you know, we had Neil Redfern there as a player who was kind of one of, I think, three people that have played like a thousand games it, it, um, professionally. Uh, another really inspiring character, uh, you know, of a similar ilk to Ricky, really, you know, played in that kind of generation with that kind of player, was pushing 40 when he was playing and he was still brilliant. Um, but the second year, you could see the cracks. That was when the money started to fall out, the issues started to arise, we started to struggle again on the pitch and, and ended up with that relegation and, and the club liquidated almost straight away. I think they managed one more season and then they kind of fell apart and, you know, we were waiting to see what was going to happen when we got a call to say, there's no club, sorry, there's no contract for you, you're done. Um, and, and so then I moved on and my next club was Forest Green. Forest Green at that time weren't what they are now. Um, they were another financially struggling, small little club in a village called Nailsworth, beautiful part of the, the country, really nice little village, um, kind of a hardcore set of around probably 1,500, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 fans that would turn up each week. Um, it was brilliant. It was a, another really good little club. With those smaller clubs, there's, there's often a real sense of community because you almost get to know the fans by name because there's not that many of them, generally speaking. Um, you know, you, you mingle after games, you, you got to know uh, people in the local area. 
Um, but if you'd have said, would they now be what they are, doing what they're doing, never in a million years? Because it, somebody like Dale Vince, who took them over, he, he would have had his choice. With that kind of money, he could have gone and taken over Knott County, which you could see. It's a big club in, a, in a, an affluent area with a great um, kind of catchment area. To take on Forest Green was, you know, I'm not quite sure how he came about it, other than the fact that it's in a nice little village in the middle of the country. But... He's done an incredible job there. I mean, he spent a huge amount of his own money to get them where they are. He's stuck with it. He's got his philosophy. He's got his, obviously, his morals and the way he wants to do things. When you go and play there, at most clubs, you get food after. And at Forest Green, you get food after, but you get vegan pies, funnily enough. Um, and I, I would have to say that, you know, back, back on it now, that's probably one of the nicest pies I've ever had. I don't know what was in it, <laughs> but it was absolutely amazing. Um, but yeah, there's no way I would have seen, you know, either club going uh, how they did. You know, Scarborough, it's such a shame because that was a similar club. They had a 1,500-strong 1, fan base that used to turn up every week at what was called the McCain Stadium. Um, the atmosphere was always good. It was always kind of a little club out the way up north. So there was that kind of, again, not necessarily siege mentality, but, you know, this is us, this is Scarborough, this is what we're, you know, who we are. And there was a real identity. Um, and so for that to get lost and, and you know, in fairness to them, they've restarted, uh, then they are, uh, you know, a, a Scarborough again, Sea Dogs, as we were called. They've got a, a brand new stadium up there with uh, an artificial pitch and they have come up through the, the, the leagues again. So they're fighting the way back up and it's great to see. And I kind of, I, I follow all of my old clubs on Twitter and, you know, I've never been, I've never had a team, like I said, Kind of before, obviously, there's an Arsenal fan and a Tottenham fan in the room. I I never had a, a team that I supported, but I've always looked out for Derby because it's where I'm from. And then I've always looked out for every team that I played for. And, and I keep an eye on the results for both those clubs. And it's it's good to see them both on a, on a kind of upward curve at the moment. Yes, especially considering the um, the fall that uh, Scarborough had. It is nice to, to hear that they're on their way up. And... Um... Something you mentioned, the name of the stadium. I wasn't familiar with the McCain Stadium, but I, I furiously Googled away in the background, and I'm pretty sure that I can confirm that is McCain uh, from uh, McCain's um, Oven Chips fame. Yeah, yeah, we we ha we actually had uh, we had a visit from Delia Smith uh, while I was there. Um, she was involved with Norwich, and and Delia Smith had just released a a new chip or potato product of some kind with McCain, and she came up for a photo op and brought a couple of the Norwich nutritionists with her and we kind of which is ironic when you think about what's probably in McCain oven chips but still she kind of came up had a chat with us um we, we got to meet her and had a few photos but yeah I mean obviously you always got a bit of stick playing at the the McCain stadium or the, the chip stadium or whatever anybody wanted to call it but um or fries I suppose it is out there in America isn't it that that would be um that'd be more apt but yeah, I mean, it, it was a lovely old stadium. It was falling apart, but that was part of its charm. Um, there was one nice stand. The others were just old school, probably been around since the 80s. Um, and the, the demographic up there was quite quite an old fan base at the time. So, it you know, really good experiences, really, you know, enjoyed playing. But I, I was always grateful that I got to kick a ball about for a living, really. Nice. Well, it sounds like a potentially quite exciting meal emerging here with some Scarborough McCain's chips and then a nice vegan pie from Forest Green. Um, it all sounds very good. But um, moving on from um, the north in Scarborough back down south to Devon um, and in 2007, 
that was when you um, first joined Torquay United, um, a club where you now, of course, are very much known as being a club legend, which is fantastic. But in that um, in that first season at Torquay, they'd um, just been relegated um, to the National League, I believe. Um, so I guess having been in the Football League for a number of years prior to that, I assume that the aim would have been to get that immediate return back to the Football League. So um, what was that first season like at Torquay? And was there, um, a, I don't know, pressure or an expectation for that team to immediately bounce back? Um, there was. I mean, there was a really, a really, really positive vibe about the place. I think they'd had two or three really tough years where, you know, they'd, they'd suffered the relegation, but it was coming. They'd had a couple of, of bad years where they'd struggled and got away with it. And so it was almost like they'd kind of hit rock bottom as such. And Paul Buckle was brought in as manager and there was a lot of good work done by him to build up a bit of a... Uh, a positive image about what we were going to do. They were taken over by a new consortium full of, you know, talky fans and people that wanted the best for the club. Um, so actually, there was a really positive vibe about the place. And obviously, in the National League, Torquay's a really big club. So, you know, you had a, a fantastic, I think we averaged about 3,000 fans that first season. It was probably my most enjoyable season in football, full stop, except the end when it went horribly wrong. Um, but, you know, I was fortunate enough. I I got into the England C team, which was like the non-league version of England in that last year at Forest Green. And because of that, perked a bit of interest elsewhere and, and Paul Buckle rang me and, and I was at, I was having a barbecue in Derby at the time um, at my parents' house, and at my dad's house. And it seemed like the other end of the world. Like, why on earth? You know, I, I wasn't sure where Torquay was. It, I, I Googled it. It was five-hour drive away it was you know and again I'm sure any uh, any of the US guys watching this five hours is just a short plane ride and that seemed tough but in England that's a long way away um, and w once I kind of made the decision to go I, I at the time I had a girlfriend who's now my wife we we kind of thought you know what lower league footballer it was a two-year contract I'll probably be down there for two or three years and then we'll we'll most likely move back up and, and that will be a little adventure why not let's do it and it was brilliant we were so forward thinking in that first season we just scored goal after goal we were exciting we were a great team spirit we had a lot of lads that were kind of similar to myself coming into those peak years 27 28 um we'd kind of got you know partners it wasn't like the single life anymore from uh, some of the younger boys and so the, the team spirit the the kind of um the shared goal what we wanted which was promotion that was spelled out to us the moment we kind of spoke with the manager this is what we're coming down here for and this is what you're going to do and that first season was frightening i mean we scored so many goals and then very famously down here going into the second leg of the playoffs um, against Exeter, the kind of big rivals, um, we blew a 3-1 lead on aggregate to get beat 4-3 with only 20 minutes to go. So that was one of the biggest slap in the faces I've ever had in football. It was kind of, you want the pitch to open up and swallow you and you can't believe after such an incredible season that it could end like that because that wasn't meant to be it wasn't how it felt it, we were going up we were certain we were going up and then we got that and then the following week we we'd got to a cup final as well that's how good a season it was and the following week we got beat by Ebsfleet in the cup at Wembley 
which, you know, nine times out of 10 would be Ebbsfleet. We were firm, firm favourites. And maybe it was a hangover from the, uh, from the, it knocked out of the playoffs, but we, we managed to blow it and get beat at Wembley there. So it's funny, football's a weird game. I, I told you about the Notts County one. We were horrible for eight out of nine months. And then we had one good month and went away feeling like we were superstars. We stayed up. Um, you know, you went away, you enjoyed your summer, everybody was absolutely buzzing. But for eight months, we were horrible. You know, the fans were depressed, we were depressed, we weren't winning games. This was the total opposite. For eight months, we were unbelievable. We probably should have got promoted automatically. We were the best team to watch in the division. We scored the most goals. And then two bad games, one bad 20 minutes against Exeter and one bad game against Ebsfleet. And you go away for the most depressed summer that you could imagine because we'd blown it. We'd absolutely caved in. Um, so when we came back the following year, there was certainly a sense of um, having to prove one or two people wrong and get what we deserved, um, which fortunately we did. Yes, no, it's, um, it's it's good you mentioned that actually, because obviously the next season, obviously there were disappointments at the end of your first season, but you would go on to beat Cambridge United in um, the playoff final in 2009. So um I guess really the question here is what what do you think made the difference in that second season that ultimately resulted in your promotion? Was it the fact that you'd suffered this sort of heartbreak or two instances of heartbreak, or was it that the team had you got a few extra players in? What what do you think was that sort of big factor that ultimately got you promoted? Um, well, we actually started that season really poorly. We we. There's quite a you know us in the dressing room were really aware that we went into a game probably about eight games in against a team called Northwich Victoria, where if we had have lost, I think the manager was gone. Um, you know, word often gets out like that in football. You have a feeling or you, you hear rumours and you think that. And, and we went 1-0 down against Northwich. And, and I'd, I'd played, my personal journey, I played every game of the season before and I got dropped for the first game of the next season and, and struggled to get in the team. And I was actually sat in a stand. Um, and... We got a penalty in the 90th minute and, uh, and a, a striker called Tim Sills scored this penalty and there's a, there's a picture of him hitting the penalty and he hit the ground first. So in the picture, there's a big tuft of turf coming up and somehow he's managed to catch the ball just and it's gone in the top corner. And, uh, and that pretty much saved the manager's job. And from that moment on, luckily for me, I got back in the team and, and I think the experience of missing out the season before the experience of, of really knowing each other and what our strengths were and what we were. A couple of additions in terms of players. Um, the manager had a bit of a change of um, style. In the first year, he was ultra-friendly. In the second year, he wasn't quite as friendly. So there was a little bit of fear as well, I think, from the players. Um, and again, we weren't as exciting in the second year, but we were pretty ruthless. We were very good at set plays, corners, free kicks. You know, I... I became quite popular for having a long throw. So I, I kind of ran from one side of the pitch to the other, launching the ball in the box. And Tim Sills was very good at flicking it on. And then we had players that would put the body on the line. So it was, it was still exciting, but it just wasn't as uh, free-flowing as what we were the year before. Um, but the win at, the win at Cambridge, uh, against Cambridge at Wembley, I mean, we... You know, we were very businesslike. We, we, the, the final, the semi-final would beat Histon, and Histon were like an underdog story themselves. They had come from nowhere. They were a tiny little village towards Cambridge. Nobody fancied them. They were, they were a proper ugly team. They just launched it, ran after it. You know, horrible pitch. Uh, you know, tiny little pitch in the middle of nowhere. 
balls getting smashed at you left, right and centre. They were big, horrible, violent team. And we kind of dug in and, and beat them in the second leg. And uh, and we were all sat in the dressing room after and it had just shown the highlights of Cambridge beating Stevenage in the other playoff semi-final. And they were popping champagne and jumping up and down and, and on top of each other and changing. And we were all just sat kind of sheltered and just said, we're not celebrating, you've not done anything. You know, we, you've got another game. So put yourselves out, let's get ready and we'll go to that. And and the year before in the cup final, we travelled down to London um, about three days before. We'd had two nights in a hotel. We'd really gone and made a, a kind of week of it. Well, normally all we did was travel the night before because Torquay's miles from everywhere. We travelled the night before, stayed in a hotel, played the game, came home. Um, and, and the manager went, that's what we're doing this year. That We're not messing about. We're just keeping it exactly what we would do in the league. We're doing it now. So we were really, really businesslike. You just knew we were going to go up. You knew you were going to win that game. And then we went out and, you know, it was the best team feeling that I've had. It's, it's great. Great escapes are brilliant and they leave you feeling great. But promotion at Wembley in front of 35, 40,000, you know, fans, half of your, half of them being yours, the kind of status that gets you because, you know, I was lucky enough to play for 20 years, but that was my one promotion. Um, and and the truth about football for most lower league players is that you probably get more downs than ups. So to have experienced that and been a part of it with that group of players was yeah hairs on the back of my neck now when you when you talk about it kind of thing. And whenever um, we get the chance to speak to people or, or hear them speak rather about having played at, at Wembley, it's um, yeah it makes it makes the hair on my neck almost stand up. That must have been some experience, and it's also quite interesting to hear that. Um, you were almost like the the non-league answer to Rory Delap once upon a time with the the long throws. Um, that was my thing. That was my thing. Yeah. So it it um, yeah the the Wembley experience was I was lucky enough you know to play there twice. I, I was lucky enough to play at the old Wembley before you know when it was the Twin Towers and and um, there's just you know it's it's kind of it's it's England home, isn't it? I mean, what like there's so many world-class players that have never played there and I played twice and so there's a certain pride and a certain uh, disbelief that you've had the fortune to do that despite the fact that when I look back I worked for 20 years to try and do it and and only managed it for, for two of those so it wasn't that I didn't put the work in it's just not an easy thing to get to and it's a team effort it's not about you it's about your team it's about your club it's about all of you doing it kind of together and timing it right and and that was our year. Like you said, it's um, something that a lot of brilliant players have never done and essentially something that any brilliant player will never get to do is play at the old Wembley because it's, you know, it's the new Wembley now. So, and I, I definitely think that the old Wembley is kind of the, the more epic one. So, so yeah, that, that's brilliant. But um, back on to, yeah, Torquay. Um, after the promotion that we were just talking about, you, you guys managed to enjoy quite a solid stay in League Two and then even nearly made it up to League One through the playoffs on a couple of occasions. And uh, personally, for yourself, you made it into the League Two Team of the Year in the 2011-2012 season, I believe it was. So around that time, what was different about either your fitness or your technique or your mentality that allowed you to sort of raise your game to new levels in that season? Um, probably the, the, the biggest lesson in football that I ever had. When we got into League Two, you were never quite sure of how the difference was. You know, was it that much better than the National League? Um, you know, and we got there. And what you found was in the National League, I was a, I was a left back. So I came up against right wingers. And generally speaking, in the National League, you had athletically gifted players that weren't technically great. 
or you had technically gifted players that weren't athletically great. And that was why they were in, you know, even for me, I wasn't athletically blessed. So that was why most of my career was, you know, the, the lower league as opposed to the Premier League. Um, and when we went up, the, the manager kind of spotted early on that some of us weren't quite at the level. Um, and he kind of he, he kind of called the old guard, really. The guys that got us up there, the more experienced players, we got beat second game of the season away at Dagenham 5-3. And you could see, you know, looking back now, that was the game that he made the decision that he was getting rid of us. Um, and so going up until about, I think it was around November, he kind of pulled me in the office and said, look, I'm sorry, you know, we've had a great run, but you're not good enough for League Two um, and you can go. And I want to tell you now to give you a chance to get another club because, you know, I respect you and we've had some great times, but this is just the end of the journey. Um, and I was fuming, you know, I was absolutely raged. I can't believe he'd do this to me. I, I was part of the team that got up. How could you? And I got frozen out of the team. So I, he, he didn't treat me badly, but, you know, he'd made his decision. I wasn't part of it. So I spent three months where he brought in about five different left-backs. Um, I was training, like, extra to try and get fit because I, knew, I didn't think I'd play for Torquay again, but I knew I still had a few years left to play. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I was ready for when my chance came with whoever that was. And I, I nearly signed at Mansfield. I nearly signed at Stevenage, but it didn't materialise. And then with seven games to go, we were close to relegation and he had no choice to put me back in. Um, and when he put me back in, my biggest weakness was pace. So when I got into League Two, I was terrified that I was going to get done for pace. So I used to sit off and, and try and make it hard for them to get in behind me. But all that actually did was open up more space between me and them. So they got more of a head of steam when they were running at me and I looked even slower when they were running past me. Um, when I got back in the team, I didn't really care anymore. I'd been told that I wasn't going to be kept on. So what does it matter if this player goes past me now? So I found myself closer to them. And then I realised that actually, it doesn't matter how quick they are, if I can get my arm on them and stop them running at me, it, it doesn't really matter. I can defend higher up. I can be brave. Now, that wasn't great coaching from the manager. He didn't teach me that. I was 29. How the hell it took me that long to figure that out, I'm not quite sure. But it was the most defining moment in my kind of peak years because I realised that although I wasn't quick, it didn't mean that I couldn't be brave in how I defended and I couldn't stop quick players. Um, and so when I got back in, I think we, we kept a clean sheet for the last six games, didn't concede a goal, we stayed up. And in fairness to the manager, he could easily have said, great, thank you, you're still gone. But he gave me a two-year contract, told me that he proved, I'd proven him wrong and, and off we went. So the following year, we got to the playoff final um, and that's when uh, Paul Buckle left to take over Bristol Rovers. And then the year after that, when Martin Ling came in, was when, when I got in team of the year. And that was my single best individual season. I, I was one of those years where everything I hit from distance went in. So I scored a few goals. We were really good defensively. We, we won so many games 1-0, but we played decent football doing it. And it was, um, you know, I had my newfound confidence as a defender that I, I wasn't going to get ran past every time someone got the ball that was quicker than me. Um, and as a team, we'd kind of benefited from four years of Paul Buckle, who was a really, he was almost military in how he, he trained us. So we knew where to be, when to be there. When the ball moved, where do we move? And so we were at, you, you didn't have to think anymore. You were just unconsciously competent at what you were doing. And then Martin Ling came in and Martin Ling was the best man manager that you've ever come across. So he just made you feel a million dollars. 
and training was really quite relaxed and you just kind of played five aside. So everyone was really happy. You look forward to going in every day. There was no, you know, Paul Buckle would, Monday was a, 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 a shape day. Tuesday was a fitness day. Thursday was a defending day. Friday, you did your set plays and then you played and you did that for four years. So you knew what you were doing. Martin Ling was like, oh, well, we fellas, right, let's have a game of five aside. Let's have a competition. Uh, how are you feeling? Great. Well done. Off you get. And so you were just delighted to play for him. And he got the benefit of us all being really well drilled without him having to drill us. So he just made us feel really good. Brought in a few more players that hit the ground running and did really well. And at the end of that season, we if it wasn't for a, a player called Nick Powell, who was uh, he was on loan. Or, no, he, he got bought by Man United soon after that game. He was at yeah. at the time. He scored a 90th minute equaliser. Otherwise, I think we'd have gone up automatically. And, and I think that kind of knocked the, the stuffing out of us because we ended up in the playoffs and then Cheltenham beat us. And, and unfortunately, it wasn't to be that year, but it was an amazing season for me. And, and those player of the year, PFA dudes, you, you go down to the Grosvenor Hotel in London, you get treated like a king. It, that was the year Robin Van Persie got player of the season in the Premier League. So you're sat on a table and Robin's just next to you getting his award and you've got all these top Premier League players. So you, you got to live the dream a little bit. So it was it was a nice experience towards the, you know, I'd say towards the end of my career, but certainly in the latter half of it. Yeah. And um, I guess the interesting thing about a league like League Two is you can go from really brilliant seasons like the one you had where you were minutes away from potentially getting promoted to sadly I guess in 2014 a, a, a year where you got relegated so um, I guess given that just a couple of seasons beforehand um, under Martin Ling and Paul Buckle you you and the team have been playing so well what do you think happened in that 2013-2014 um, that season where unfortunately yeah it did result in um, a relegation? Yeah I mean it, it was I suppose a, a mixture of things both on and off the pitch really um Martin Ling, unfortunately, was suffering from from mental health issues. We didn't know that uh, the season before. He kind of he went on um, on leave because we we were told he was ill. We didn't know what. We we kind of assumed it was a you know something nasty, but we didn't know what it was. A uh, manager came in called Alan Neil, who's now doing really well as the assistant manager to Chris Wilder at Sheffield United, and and he came in and, and basically said, "Look, you know, I'm here to help out um, Martin Ling and." Um, and, and he'll be back, but let's go and do this. And the first, you know, his first bit, we stayed up, but then they sacked Martin Ling as he got uh, well and wanted to come back to work. And, and Alan Neil got the job permanently. And and I think that upset a few because, like I said, Martin Ling was a favourite. He was a very, very nice man. He was a very, very good manager. Um, so it started off on a bit of a negative. Um, and then, like all things, you know, new manager comes in, uh, he brings in his own players, moves on some of the the ones that because the the season after the playoffs wasn't a great season. You know, we didn't do great. We stayed up, but it wasn't fantastic by any means. And then he kind of wanted to make changes, which I think he probably would as a manager. Really, you know, you want to put your stamp on it. You've got the old manager's players in there, so you you want to get your own in. And a few of us fell by the wayside and and never really got back in it. Um, unfortunately, I, I didn't play much that season and. And then uh, Chris Hargreaves, the next player, came in towards the end, and it was his first job in manage uh, his first job as a manager, and um, it, it just didn't work out. You know, we we didn't play well. We had good enough players, but we didn't put it together enough. Uh, that downward spiral, that downward momentum, took us down, and 
And unfortunately, it was back to the conference, which was a, a massive shame because, you know, having had so many good years in that kind of 07 to 2012, you kind of thought the club was back on the way up. But football is a, a cruel mistress and uh, and it can turn really quickly as lots of clubs out there know at the moment. And uh, yeah, we were on the wrong end of it. Well, just to stick with um, the Torquay portion of your career for... Um... For just a little bit longer here one last sort of question and um after the spell with torquay your first spell that we were talking about you you enjoyed a few seasons at uh, kidderminster which we kind of referenced at the beginning and then uh, bath as well you were there before you returned to Plainmore, but this time as a, a player manager so you admirably and you know against all the odds managed to keep torquay up from relegation to the national league south in your first season there although the following season you wouldn't be there at the end but the club would would sadly get relegated so how much pressure was there to manage a club that was essentially on the brink of, yes, yeah, slipping down the non-league ladder in your first ever coaching role? And then on top of that, was there additional pressure given that you were somebody who was so intertwined with the recent history and success of the club? Yeah, I, I certainly wanted what was best for the club and the fans. And I think that's probably why we ended up staying up. I I was there. I came in in um, September, October in the 2015 season. And I had that season and then one more full season. It was the beginning of the 2017-18 season. I, four games in, I got the sack. And and that was at the end of that year that they went down. But my two seasons there were both down as, again, great escapes. It was another, you know, club in turmoil, unfortunately. So it's quite famous down here that I had to drive them to games in, the, in a minibus because we only had budget for either an overnight stay or a coach. And I felt that if you were driving six hours on the morning of a game, you weren't going to be ready. So, right, we'll take the minibus, I'll drive. Let's have, an, let's have the, the hotel and prepare as best we can. So there was some incredible, I mean, for me personally, it was the best first job you could ever ask for because you got to really see what you were about. You got to see how you coped with adversity um, at, at a real tough level because, you know, it's not, a lower league club this this is um you know it's a, a big football club with a big fan base and expectation and uh fans that i knew a lot i've been there for seven years to begin with as a player this was my kind of second thing i knew everybody i knew the people that worked there i knew that jobs were on the line so there was a certain element of pressure but generally generally speaking I heard jose Mourinho talking about pressure isn't football pressure is you know in the armed forces and and that kind of stuff where we train to go and play and on a bad day we get booed and on a really bad day you might get sacked, but no one dies. People in the armed forces go and train, then go and get shot out and on a bad day they're gone. Um, you know, so I think pressure and is a very relative term. Um, it wasn't something, you know, don't get me wrong, my missus told me that I aged years while it was happening, but I didn't feel bad when it was happening to me. I just wanted the best for everybody involved. I wanted the best for our players. I wanted the best for the fans, the best for the club. And and in the first year, we turned it round in an incredible fashion where we kind of came from uh, 12 points adrift in February uh, and stayed up in April um, with two games to go. And it was one of the best, again, best feeling ever, that one, because everybody put so much into it. And as a, as a player, it's quite a... Being a player, in a way, is a selfish pursuit. You, you want your next game. You want your next contract. You want to make sure that you and your family are sorted and that it's about you. As much as you're part of a team and you want that team to do well, 
it's really about you. As the manager, it's not. You know, I can as a player, you could have a really good game, but beat three nil, and you could go home thinking, well, I did quite well. I'm disappointed that we lost, but I, I did all right myself. And you know, you can kind of gloss over it a bit. As a manager, if you get beat three nil, it doesn't matter. Like if you played well or not, you're the manager, and it's on you, and and you're responsible for everything that happens, and you have to take that responsibility. Um, so to have such a tough time. And, and I, if, if the club would have had any money, I'd have been sacked at Christmas. There's no two ways about that. They just couldn't afford to sack me. Um, so I got given a bit extra time because of that. And then we stay up and again, amazing summer. The problem really was that the, off the pitch, the, the club was in absolute turmoil. The, the, the chairman at the time was a great fella who had put a load of his own money in along with some other Torquay fans, but they weren't, you know, you look at like a Roman Abramovich, that's football wealthy. Uh, you know, um, the Forest Green owner, that's football wealthy. You can bump 10 million and not worry about it too much. We were talking about guys that, you know, 10, 20, 30 grand was a lot of money to them. And and so it was a really tough time because we just didn't have the infrastructure off the pitch to be able to achieve anything. It was just firefighting all the time. So my remit really was to, Stay up under, you know, whatever the cost, just stay up. But if you could sell a few players while you're doing it, because we need the money, that would be great. And those things don't really go hand in hand. You want your best players to be able to do the staying up. And at the end of the first season, I, I suffered from that because the players had done so well that everybody else in the, the leagues had noticed. So they just came and offered them more money. And I was pleased for them. I want all my players that I work with to go on and do better than I ever did. And these players got the opportunity to go and do that. So a load of them moved to bigger and better things. And then I had to start all over again with a small budget, a club that was struggling, that's at the, the arse end of nowhere by most people. You know, if you live in London, you've never heard of Torquay. You may as well go and play in America. It's that far, you know, it seems that far away for them. Um, and so it was an incredible learning curve. Second year, we were... I think it was four points adrift with three games to go and down by all accounts. And we won the last three games and stayed up. So we had another experience of a, a great escape type of feeling. But it caught up with me the following year because four games in, I, I got sacked. And unfortunately, that, that was the end. And there was a lot of other stuff that I'll probably put in my book and, and won't describe on a uh, on a podcast that, uh, that goes with that. But it was certainly colourful. It was very, very interesting. And it was a, a great experience for somebody that will probably look at going back into management at some time in the future. Well, um, that's that's great to hear that you're you're planning on, yeah, potentially taking those steps back in back into management. I was going to say that it, it doesn't sound great, yeah, I guess, getting sacked after four games, although it, it, being spared at Christmas, maybe that would have been a worse time. So swings and roundabouts. <laughs> Otherwise, um, really quickly, before we just move on to one last section, uh, I wanted to ask about the sort of... Um, dynamic of a player coach player manager role just honestly speaking if you did you ever come off the pitch playing you know maybe you were the worst player I mean did you ever have a bad game and then find it difficult to continue to command the respect of your squad well funny enough like I suppose I touched on it there when I first went in in my first season the team needed experience so I played and I, and I played the first 20 odd games while I was in there and I was actually playing really well but we were getting beat so I couldn't go home and say to the missus, oh, don't worry, I played really well, we're fine, because you're the manager. So <laughs> you're getting sacked, regardless of how well you play. Um, what I found was uh, the respect wasn't an issue because I think they all knew that I was a good player and I had been a, a very good player at that level. Um, 
I think, you know, it's easy for me to say, you'd have to ask my ex-players, I think I was a good man manager. I, I think that they respected and wanted to learn and, and wanted to get better. And I think my record of moving players on who have gone on and achieved more would probably back that up. But um, what I found was when you're on the pitch, if something goes wrong, they all turn to look at you because you're the manager. So it took away from their own ownership of what they were doing and it took away from the leaders on the pitch because the manager's on the pitch. So right then, Gaffer, what, you know, what we're going to do now, we're 2-0 down. Um, what I then did when I took myself out, what I found was they were so much better without me. Although um, it, it's hard to say and I, I loved playing and I wanted to continue to play, the leaders within the group came out when I wasn't on the pitch because they had to. So, yes, I was on the side of the pitch. And, yes, you shout instruction on now and then and they turn to look at you if you needed something tweaking. But generally speaking, when I wasn't on the pitch, the players performed better, took ownership of what they were doing. The leaders stood out and started leading. The voice was more and it, and there was more freedom within the team. So I, I ended up in my kind of player-manager role. I think I played about 20, 22 games in my first season back. I only played four in the second season. Um, you know, luckily for me, I kind of made a joke at the start of the season because I was on 346 appearances. So I said, like, in one of my press briefings, I'd love to just play. I'll put myself on four times as soon as I'm the manager just to get to that 350. And, and ironically, I ended up playing four times. So I got to that nice round number. Um, but, yeah, I don't think in the modern game, I know going back, 30, 40 years, player managers were a bit more common. I don't think it's something that would work to the level that you'd want it because there's just too much for a manager to do nowadays. And in lower levels, like, you know, at Torquay, you've not got a huge amount of staff around you to do it. So, you know, you were coaching, you were man managing, you were driving the bus at times, you were, you know, doing all of that work and, and you were also trying to prepare yourself physically to play. And I wasn't, you know... <laughs> I wasn't at my peak by any stretch. I was, you know, 35 when I went back and um, I was still capable of playing, but I had to be concentrated totally because I wasn't good enough to get away with mistakes. I wasn't physically capable anymore of being able to recover if somebody got a yard away from me because I wasn't quick in my prime and I certainly wasn't quick at 35. Um, so it was probably a bit too much. I could hold my own. I could play pretty well, but to do both, it had its issues both ways. And so I was really quite proud of the team when I stepped out of how they blossomed and and really took a, a control of what they were doing. So it was a, a huge source of pride to keep them up for those two years and, and a shame that, you know, I left and they went down. But this is this is football. No, this is football. And, um, yeah, obviously you did um, well that, yeah, the story of you staying up was fantastic and I think you got the nickname the Ranieri of the Riviera um, as well which is quite a fun nickname um, too but um, from one club in Devon to um, another one one that I'm whilst I've got the Spurs shirts behind me another club that I'd, I'd say I support so um, in um, August 2019 I believe you were appointed as head of coaching at Exeter City and of course um, I think Kaitel mentioned it at the start but Exeter's academy is up there with some of the best in the country in terms of the um, the talent it produces. And you only have to look actually to the last league game Exeter played in against Bradford um, last weekend. And there were, um, there were five academy players in the starting lineup that day. And that's, um, that's not too surprising Exeter. It's quite a regular um, occurrence. So um, 
as head of coaching um, at Exeter City, sort of how how satisfying is it for you to see all these players thrive in the first team? And also, um, given that your um, your previous coaching role, albeit as a first team manager, a slightly different one, was at a club at Torquay where, as you were saying, you were driving the minibus and it everything was well, it was all quite unstable. How um, how different is your has your experience to date at Exeter City been that for League Two standards seems to be a pretty um, stable and well run club? Yeah, um, I mean, when I was at Torquay, it always from the outside looking in, Exeter City always looked like a good club. And, and now I'm on the inside of it. It is the best run club that I've come across. Um, it, it's not easy. It's a it's a fan owned club. So there's four parts to the business. There's the the trust itself, the the, the fan owners. There's the Exeter City in the community. So the guys that go out and go to the schools and do those kind of projects. And then there's obviously the 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 main bit, the first team, which is what the the flagship. That's what everybody looks at. That's what the Exeter fans are there for. But the academy and all four parts of that business to be successful have to understand each other have to understand what each other are trying to do you know what's the why why do we do what we do well we we give these youngsters in our community a fantastic opportunity to be professional players we bring players through which allows the manager to potentially um make the most of his budget because a young up-and-coming player is going to cost less than the equivalent player that you have to bring down from up north. The understanding from the the very top all the way through is incredible. The the communication, the relationships, the you know, very from the, the Julian Tag, who's been a driving force behind the academy and the club for, for many, many years, um, you know, he had this understanding that if the first team when it was Paul Tisdale, if they're brave enough to play the youth players, it could have a massive, massive effect throughout the club. Again, it can help his budget. You can bring players through to play in your first team. You can sell players on that will sustain the club for many years to come. When you've got that working, that gives role models in the community. So there's more young players that see what a possibility it is. So attracting players to the club becomes easier. The young players that are now coming through can see that they will be given a chance, whereas a lot of academies can't can't show that. They can't show the the end product. They can't show a manager. You know, Matt Taylor, Wayne Carlisle and, and Dan Green, the first team management kind of group, you know, they're brave to play these young players because, you know, it could go wrong. They're young men. You know, it's it would be easy for them to have a bad game, both individually and collectively, but they get shown real trust and put in there at the deep end to go and play. Um, you know the the level of um, succession planning within the club. The three guys I've just mentioned there: the manager, the assistant, and the first team coach have all played for Exeter. Dan Green, who's the first team coach, he kind of came into the academy as a player, and then went back into the academy as a coach and started with the under nines, and is now the first team coach and the under twenty three coach. Wayne Carlisle and Matt Taylor both played for Exeter. Then they came back in coaching roles. Wayne Carlisle was the head of coaching before me and went over to be Matty's assistant. And Matt Taylor was the under-23 coach. So you imagine when there's that level of consistency and that level of um, understanding of what the values of the club are, that it's a, it's a recipe for success. And if you compare it and contrast it to so many other football clubs, manager comes in, he's got his ideas, his philosophy, his way of doing things. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But how does that translate to the academy? Does he even want youth players? What does the youth look like to him? Do the youth players think, wow, I've got a chance now? Or is it banging your head against the wall because I'm never going to get in my first team anyway? 
then he moves on and the next person comes in and it's a change of personality it's a change of philosophy it's a change of business model and that's a kind of a perpetual cycle in football whereas at exeter you had paul tisdale for 12 years who understood the value of youth understood the value of the academy gave young players a chance developed those young players in a first team environment while continuing success with the first team he moves on matt taylor comes in he knows the model he knows what works he's got his slightly different personality he's got his different slights um, in his philosophy and how he would play but fundamentally understands how exeter city works and what's best for the club not just matt taylor and and you just have to look at the results over the last few years you have to look at the players that have come through that have either played in the first team that have been sold on before they've got to the first team or that have played in the first team and are now playing in the Premier League Championship and, and all those leagues around. So it it's brave. It's not something that comes overnight. It's something that's got to be believed in and worked for. And you're going to have to have some tough times. You know, Paul Tisdale was bottom of the league a few years ago, going into Christmas, and there was a the fans, even the fans were starting to get uh, you know unrest, and there was there was issues there. And, and they stuck with him and the, the ownership stuck with him and they ended up in the playoffs at the end of that season. But it's not a common model in football. And it's not for the faint-hearted because playing an 18-year-old where he's never played a first-team game and you need to win that game takes some balls, to be honest. Um, and it, it's fantastic and really, really interesting for me to be on the inside now and seeing it. And my job is to help develop the coaches who then help develop the players I also help develop the players within the academy and there's a certain pressure on that because you want the success to continue. And, you know, I've been in the building for, you know, 16, 17 months now. Hopefully I've helped influence positively some of the guys that are in there, both the coaches and the players. But my, my kind of judgment for me personally, I'll probably be looking three or four years from now to see, you know, what my effect has really been within those coaches. Um, but it's a. It really is a, a genuinely excellent football club, and um, yeah, I think a lot of people could take notes and and really try and emulate it because it, it would work, but it won't be easy. That does bring us um, to the end of um, the podcast today, and um, Kevin. Well, firstly, Kaitel, thank you for being a, a great co-host as always. But um, Kevin, um, thank you so much for being such a great guest as well, and I hope you enjoyed yourself. Yeah, no, great talking. Always, always nice to talk nostalgic uh, years gone by and try and relive those glory, glory years. <laughs> Brilliant, um, Kevin. How um, how can our followers um, follow you and sort of keep up to date with everything you're doing? Um, well, I, I am one of kind of the new breed of coaches. I am uh, I am on Twitter and uh, I I got talked into going on Instagram, which I still don't quite get yet. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, if, I, I'm on all forms of uh, social media. So you can uh, keep up to date with a little bit of what's going on. And obviously, just keep your eye on Exeter and, uh, and their players. Brilliant. Fantastic. Hopefully, we'll all be following you. And then on the topic of following, um, for anyone listening, please follow us on um, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Our handle is United Mates FP. And then you can also subscribe to us on YouTube. That's the United Mates Football Podcast. That's all from us today. Thank you very much and goodbye.